0: Hi, my name is Millie Vieira and this is Global Tides, a podcast where I interview Pepperdine students and faculty that have produced excellent research. In a polarized political climate, the idea of how much, or how little, a government should be involved in regulating the economy is a devastatingly partisan issue. However, it doesn't have to be. Research shows that by understanding a vulnerable country's needs and controlling capital accordingly, Appropriate government intervention can make a lasting difference in the overall health of an economy. In Chile's case, it led to economic growth. For Argentina, it brought financial ruin. Today, we are joined by Reagan Shane, a senior double majoring in international studies and economics. Thanks so much for joining me, Reagan. Thank you for having me. So, before we dive into your research findings, I want our podcast listeners to get the chance to know you better. Do you mind telling me a little bit about yourself?
1: Of course. So I am a senior. I'll be graduating in May, still figuring out what exactly postgrad is going to look like. I'll let you know if I know. (laughs) Um, And I studied abroad in Argentina, so that will be relevant for, you know, my entire paper. Um, I am a double major, as you mentioned, in international studies and economics. The international studies has a concentration in political science, but I also have a Spanish minor, Hispanic studies minor technically, and I am a part of the Global Fellows program. So I'll graduate with the Global Fellows certificate.
0: Wow, so you've obviously had a very impressive undergraduate career. Any idea where you'd like your professional career to take you?
1: Like I kind of alluded to, I'm still figuring it out a little bit. Um, I have kind of a funny conjunction of interests. So my three broad areas of interest are international economic development, which makes sense um, with the scope of my paper, and then human rights issues, specifically human trafficking and violence against women are things that I've been looking into a lot. And within the last year or so, I've also started being really interested in nuclear non-proliferation, which, as you might imagine, might not be the easiest sudden career interest to become interested in. But I am hoping probably to pursue a career in the State Department, either in the Foreign Service or in Civil Service, um, or in an international development organization. And so if I'm in the former, if I'm in the State Department, having some kind of background on nuclear issues, I could see be it might be helpful. Uh, right. So... We'll see. I also, I've just always loved languages. And so regardless of what specifically I end up doing, I just know that languages are something that I'm going to want to incorporate in my career. Well, I mean, after reviewing your research, I
0: definitely think you have what it takes to accomplish these goals. So I'm rooting for you. (laughs) Thank you. So I guess switching gears now, your research explores the effectiveness of capital controls using Argentina and Chile as case studies. So my first question for you
1: is, can you explain to me, in layman's terms,
0: what are capital controls?
1: This is obviously a crucial question. Um, the The definition, generally speaking, is just capital controls are the things that a government does to limit or prevent the flow of foreign capital or foreign money, typically is what you can think of, in and out of the domestic economy. So some classic examples are taxes, tariffs, currency restrictions typically on the exchange rate and bank regulations and then there are some other things as well but those are kind of the ones that people are most familiar with so to really give you a solid basis for the rest of this paper let's imagine that you and I are two different countries so we have the country of Millie and the country of Reagan and each of us love it yes (laughs) yes we're, we're the best countries, if you ask yes,
0: me. Uh, yes, yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, so, in each of our domestic economies, each of us has $100. And you've heard that I wrote this paper and that I'm an econ major. And so, you think that my individual country's economy is going to thrive. And you decide that it's a good place to invest. So, you give me $50. So now I'm able to operate and make decisions from the space of my $100 plus your $50. So I now have $150 to use productively every day. And I might start to up my standard of living and that kind of thing. But if something comes up on your end, you have an economic crisis or something, and you realize you need your $50 back and you take it back, I've suddenly gotten used to living from $150. So I might now have these um, expenses that I have to fulfill, but that I can no longer afford because I am back to my original hundred dollars. So capital controls are intended to get rid of that vulnerability um, from you being able to just quickly remove the money that you invested in me. Um, So an example might be that I say, thanks Millie, I really would love your $50, but actually no thanks, I'm only going to take up to $25 from you. So I'm limiting, I'm controlling, how much can actually come into my economy. Uh, the alternative would be, the most common alternative, would be to say, I'll take the $50, but you have to promise me that you're not going to take it back for a minimum of five years. And so I'm able to operate for the next five years in a place of security, where I know that I'm not gonna be going to be subject to volatility, I know you're not gonna take that money back, and so I can use the $150 freely for five years and use it to make investments and to make more money. So. In essence, capital controls are limiting the flow of foreign currency or of foreign capital. And in my example, they're reducing it from $50 to $25, but they're intended to reduce vulnerability. Gotcha. So
0: basically, it's just a country saying like, hey, we don't want to be in our own fragile economy, subject to the whims of other kind of volatile economy. So we're going to kind of protect ourselves here. Gotcha. Okay. Thanks for that definition. I feel like that kind of lays the groundwork here. I guess my follow-up question is what led to your interest in the subject of capital controls?
1: It is kind of, uh, it feels kind of obscure in the world of international relations. Um, right. So, you know, it's not like I'm, I think capital controls are the most incredible thing on the face of the planet. Um, <laughs> but where that came from part of it was just the fact that I needed to focus in on a subject within international trade because I was originally working on this for a class and so you know we had a page limit and I couldn't write a whole dissertation on it so I knew that I needed to pick something a little bit more concrete than just like vague trade restrictions or something like that Um, And I felt like capital controls were extremely relevant, especially because of the trade war with China at the time. We were having discussions of trade policy and how much should you limit things from other countries. So it felt relevant. Um, But I was also drawn to it because of just honestly political polarization. Um, When I first started studying this and deciding what to do, I felt like the classic position is that Republicans are the laissez-faire internationalists. They're against restriction and liberalization is the future, and that Democrats are the opposite, and they're protectionist. And I really just wanted to remove the political lens and see what does history say? What has the research shown? What is the most effective? And I couldn't help but think that if both sides are arguing one way or the other, surely there's got to be a little bit of truth in both. So I was curious to see how those positions that we see as so divided might actually inform one another.
0: So your paper focuses specifically on the economies of Argentina and Chile.
1: Why did you choose these countries? Again, it was a combination of two things. Um, One was just personal interest. I had just gotten back from Argentina. I had loved being there during an election season and kind of in the middle of an economic crisis, if I can say that, Um, because as an econ major, I thought it was interesting to see that the country was kind of in dire straits and ended up defaulting on its debt for the millionth time uh, after I left. And I also knew that it made sense to contrast its situation with another South American country. And that is the second half of why I chose the countries. It was for research purposes. Um, The two countries have a lot of similarities. Argentina and Chile have a lot of similarities. And so that's good research practice in controlling for endogeneity. Right. And to our listeners in the field
0: of international studies and economics... The word exogenous relates to changes or symptoms that occur as a result of an outside force, but endogenous is the opposite, a symptom occurring as a result of a change from within.
1: Exactly, so when we control for endogeneity, we're trying to make sure that everything within the study is the same. So that is, we're controlling for characteristics that might provide an alternate explanation which implies that if we do control for those characteristics, then we know that the only possible explanation is whatever we're actually studying. So, for example, Argentina and Chile, this is kind of a funny comparison, but physically geographically, they're very long countries. And the reason that that actually is valuable is that that means that they encompass a variety of terrain and natural resources, which might otherwise account for differences in development. It would be different to compare Brazil with a country in the middle of Africa. They have two very different um, types of geography. And so those things might be the thing that are responsible for differences in development. So by... The fact that these are two long countries, they this helps us to control for changes in natural resources. Similarly, they have similar military and political histories. They both have military coups and military juntas. Um, and so that obviously can make a big difference in the policies that a country pursues. And then there are just some other little factors that still matter. So they're among the most urbanized countries in the world. And they also had... That laws passed for women's suffrage in the 1940s, and we know in international development that women's empowerment can be huge in determining a country's economic development. So they had these other little things in common that really just solidified. These are two similar countries with very different outcomes. Argentina's a mess, Chile is not. Um, And we can figure out why, knowing that they have all these other similarities and know that that why probably has something to do with capital controls.
0: Right, yeah. So on that note, I noticed a line in your research that really encapsulated what you kind of just said. And you said that Chile is generally the poster child of a transition to market-based stability, whereas Argentina is the poster child of economic crisis. I'd like to break that down a bit more in a minute. But first, I want to get the pulse of existing scholarship about capital controls. So what are some of the pros of capital controls
1: and what are some of the cons? So I'll start with the pros because there's really one main one, and that's that it can reduce volatility. Specifically, it can reduce the volatile sources of investment and thereby make the country less vulnerable to negative foreign changes or, like you said, to the whims of other countries. In general, the opposite, getting rid of capital controls and having more financial openness means that you have more financial vulnerability the cons are a bit longer that's why there's a discussion of this in the first place one is that it decreases foreign investment so like in my example if i use capital controls it's typically going to mean that you're not going to invest invest as much money in me um so that prevents maximum growth and fdi uh, foreign direct investment is a really important factor in determining maximum growth and in getting to maximum growth Uh, It also causes a decrease in investment and income because things like taxes and tariffs make it harder for other countries to come to your country and do business there and create firms. And so it discourages foreign firms from coming into your country, which also drives down productivity and growth. In all, I would say the summary is that the major thing it does is what I've said a couple times, driving down GDP, driving down productivity. And if you're in a less developed economy, which is typically what we're talking about, or an emerging market economy you want GDP and productivity. So it's a negative thing. There's also this smaller factor, just that it creates an opportunity for corruption. Wherever there are restrictions and laws, it means that the gains for an official who's supposed to be enforcing those restrictions, the gains are higher, the more there are restrictions. And so there are, it's going to be There will be a higher payoff for corrupt officials who help people get around those restrictions. And then they're just weak um, in the sense that they're hard to enforce. It can be really difficult to prevent corruption and to make those laws strong.
0: So is there a general rule for when countries should keep or get rid of capital controls? I guess, are there circumstances under which a country is able to actually enjoy the pros you mentioned, without experiencing all of those cons?
1: Because there are so many cons, it's easy to think that, at least initially, it's easy to think that a country should just get rid of capital controls in the name of growth um, and productivity. But that's often more dangerous than people realize, and it doesn't work all the time. And so this is a really important question. In short, growth is generally good. um, And so it makes sense that capital controls would increase productivity and therefore increase the state of the economy. But the cons of capital controls, specifically increased vulnerability, mean that countries need strong institutions with a good regulatory framework if they're actually going to enjoy um, if they're actually going to enjoy getting rid of those cons. There also typically needs to be some minimum level of international integration before countries get rid of capital controls, but I'll touch on that a little bit um, later on when we talk about Chile. So those are the general guidelines, I would say, but, and we'll touch on this in a second, my research did identify some really important nuances in the case study that I think shed a lot more clarity on when capital controls are better to maintain or eliminate, because both countries did have at various points capital controls. They both used them.
0: Right. So both Argentina and Chile had capital controls at various points during their history. But like you said, somehow Chile did it really well. They're successful, right? Whereas Argentina just, it didn't work out for them and they're still struggling. So I guess I wanted to take the next few minutes or so to kind of break down why that is. Um, And first of all, you talked about how in your paper, Since the liberalization of Argentina in 2015, which theoretically would have promoted growth with the elimination of capital controls, there has been extreme inflation and day-to-day changes in the exchange rate. And you say that in a single day, the Argentinian peso lost 25% of its value against the U.S. dollar.
1: So why is this happening? That is the big question. It's been happening for years and years, and it's important to note that Argentina has gone through periods of having capital controls and not having them, and lots of different things have been tried to fix the economy, and we're still here. We're still discussing it, and we're still asking, will Argentina ever get out of this situation? In large part, the volatility is happening regardless of these international trade decisions. It's become like a sickness that has infected the economy, what feels like permanently right now. And there are a few potential reasons why all of this started so many years ago and why everything has just ramped up and continued regardless of what policies the country chooses to pursue. But the two big determining factors that I think that I was able to identify is one rooted in the distinction between capital outflows and inflows. It matters whether you're controlling capital outflows or inflows or both. And then the second is the role of international backing, which kind of for better or worse is a factor that we need to consider. So you
0: mentioned this nuance between the control of capital inflows and capital outflows. So I guess money inflow, money outflow. But can you break down what this really
1: means? What does it look like? Yeah. So like you said, money inflow, money outflow. That's kind of what you're thinking of. In a sense, it is exactly what it sounds like. You're talking about inflows, so things that are coming into the country, investment coming into the country. It's the fifty dollars that you gave me in our original Millie versus Reagan example. Right. Um, yeah, and then outflows is the opposite, capital leaving the country. So typically, you can the easiest way to think of it is just that money is being withdrawn for one reason or another. So
0: basically, you're saying that a government could decide if they want to control one or the other, so they could control the capital coming into the country or the capital leaving the country. And they don't have to do both.
1: Exactly. I wish you could see me nodding right now because that's exactly right. Um, and a lot of people, especially if you are maybe a policymaker who hasn't studied econ in depth and maybe just hasn't gotten advice from the right people, you might not realize this. But you're exactly right. A country can choose to focus on one or the other or even to focus within, say, capital inflows and choose to focus on a specific type of capital inflow. So it's a really important distinction. Right. So how do Chile and
0: Argentina
1: differ in their approach? This is undoubtedly one of the biggest things that I noticed. Chile focused on capital inflows, specifically controlling capital inflows. Um, okay. And that helps to reduce volatility, which is one of the major benefits of capital controls in the first place. Uh, Argentina, on the other hand, focused on both outflows and inflows. And so they did, at least in theory, get some reduced volatility and some reduced vulnerability when they had those capital controls in place. But by focusing on outflows as well, that generally seemed to reduce growth. So where Chile was able to reduce volatility but still enjoy growth and enjoy the benefits of foreign investment, Argentina, simply put, wasn't. Because by focusing on both, they really discouraged any investment at all. Um There was one specific example where Argentina and a couple other countries in uh, Latin America, but in this case, Argentina is what we'll focus on. They increased their controls on capital outflows because they were trying to prevent capital flight. So they were trying to prevent investors, foreign investors, from withdrawing all of their investments. But by focusing on controlling capital outflows, it signaled that they were having a tough time and it signaled that investors probably wanted to get their capital out of the country because they were struggling Um, and so counterintuitively by trying to restrict capital outflows and prevent capital from leaving the country they actually increased capital flight wow so it's unfortunate
0: (laughs) yeah seriously and so I think the other thing you we talked about outflows and inflows and the other thing you mentioned a little bit earlier was the
1: role of international backing So what does that mean? So international support or interest ends up being a lot more important than I think we would normally think. Um, We tend to think that countries' policies are the things that determine their success. And there can be these random events. There could be a global recession or something like that that might affect the country no matter what the policy is. But for the most part, we tend to hope and believe that the country's decisions matter and sometimes that is the case but in the case of international backing when you compare the cases of argentina and chile in a lot of ways even if you put the outflows and inflows situation aside in a lot of ways argentina was taking more measures to support liberalization and to signal we want to be a part of the Western world order We're trying to signal that we are ready to engage with you internationally, um, you being the United States and other mm-hmm. large players in the region. Um, so in a sense, Argentina was doing more. But to put it simply, nobody really cared. <laughs> Whereas yeah. Chile, everybody was rooting for, I guess, Um And there are various reasons why Chile did or did not have, well, no, not did or did not, did have as much or have more support than Argentina. Um, But in the end, that turned out to be a huge factor, because if other countries had responded to and reciprocated Argentina's efforts to become internationally integrated, they probably would have been more successful. But because, like I said, because nobody really cared um it their efforts just didn't seem to matter as much as chiles did and they weren't as successful what i'm taking away from this is when
0: thinking about capital controls the most important thing is to get specific so to what what, depending on your economy i guess focus on capital inflows versus outflows and really kind of have Someone who who studied on this on the topic, really making these plans for you because it's not just a one size fits all approach. And then, I guess my other one meta level takeaway from what you just shared with me now is that diplomacy matters and relationships with other countries matter. Um, and anyone who says differently is really a kind of ignoring a, a big component of how I guess this disparity between Argentina and Chile's economic. Growth really kind of came came to be so
1: I think if you ignore the importance of diplomacy and at least being aware of your country's situation with respect to the rest of the world and kind of what your location is if you're at the top of the pack middle of the pack bottom of the pack I think that if you ignore that it's really just going to be setting yourself up for failure
0: to conclude our conversation today I wanted to ask, do you have any observations about the
1: future of the Chilean and Argentinian economies? Mm. This is a particularly interesting time to ask this question with COVID um, and whatnot. Also, Chile will be interesting to watch because they have elections coming up. And back in 2019 and at the beginning of 2022, if I remember correctly, they were having these massive protests against social inequality in the country. Um, So it'll be really interesting to see how those protests and those concerns play out in the election and then also interesting to see how policies change and how that in turn affects the economy. Um, So I don't know what we'll see there um, but I think we'll be finding out soon and then Argentina, let's be frank, is likely to continue to be a mess just because every economy is struggling right now with COVID and it's wildly unlikely that they will somehow find the perfect policy to get them out of their own economic crisis and the crisis imposed by COVID. Um, There are a couple of specific things too that have just probably helped prevent the spread of the virus, but have really done additional damage to their economy. So there are little things like they had restricted from April to September, I believe they might have extended it, but they suspended international and domestic flights. And so the idea was less travel and so less COVID. Um, But as a result, travel, aviation, tourism industries are suffering a lot and a lot of jobs have been lost. Um, Given that a lot of those companies were already under economic pressure, it is much less likely that those jobs will just bounce back. There were some other things. They passed a tax that was focused on the wealthy um, and taxing that wealth to fund their COVID efforts and it was supposed to be a one-off measure it's not a new long-term policy but a lot of opponents have argued that it's going to discourage foreign investment by signaling that wealth will be taxed that taxes will be greater and so it might in the long term decrease growth and then there are some other things that a lot of people have talked about printing money lately and um the central bank in Argentina has actually been doing that. They hit a point where they needed that influx of money in the economy. But given that inflation is already, I think, above 30%, that additional printed money is not going to do anything to help the situation. So long story short, lots of different things, things I haven't even touched on um, that Argentina has been doing that have probably helped it fight the virus, which is important. But the inevitable effect is that the economy is going to continue to struggle. um, And long-term COVID recovery, specifically in terms of economic recovery, is likely to be even harder.
0: That was Reagan Shane sharing about her research on capital controls in Argentina and Chile. Thank you so much for joining us, Reagan. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. This episode was edited and produced by Taylor Matthews. Our next episode will feature Christina Stratton, a psychology student studying the effect of problematic smartphone usage on our levels of mindfulness and mental health. See you next time.